So, Bob, I have some emails from patrons that they would like you and I to read and then respond to. What do you say, Bob? That sounds good. You think we'll get through some today? Yeah. (laughs) This is the Psychology of Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor and someone who mostly enjoys the dreary days of winter in Seattle. Who are you? You're in one now. It is really raining. Yeah. Gray. Yeah. We're both looking out the window right now. It's that... It's it's like the way weather is in Seattle yeah. for like probably six months. It's overcast, uh, raining, but just slightly, mm. and about 55 degrees. Yeah. I don't know how many Celsius that is. Uh, everything's wet, standing water everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's a, there's a misty uh, green, you know, lots of green. Tre- you see in the backyard trees lots and of green. bushes and... You know, wildlife, and I have my hummingbird feeder out, and it's just a very, um, uh, just a very northwest kind of situation. Do you, do you get hummingbirds? I do. Do you get them this time of year? Yeah. Oh, I'm jealous, man. I totally want to do that. Yeah. Yeah, you'd think they would, but maybe we get ones that are coming down. I don't know, anyway. But who are you, Bob? Uh, I'm a person without a hummingbird feeder. That's who I am. <laughs> Uh, a therapist in practice here in Seattle, and you and me have been friends for a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. So, first email, patron Molly says, I'm wondering if you and Bob would talk about the following. As evolved as Bob is around his disorganized attachment style, I can't help but wonder if he ever encounters frustrations in his relationships or intimate relationships where he feels as though the fault always falls on him and his disorganized style when conflicts arise. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it takes two to tango after all. Sure. How does he respond with awareness and compassion and resolution while not taking on all the blame? I'm asking because he shares the stories about conflict and how his disorganized attachment contributed to having a breakdown. He seems to sound, uh, he seems to, I think, she, breakdown, I think she yeah. means conflicts that you've had that oh. you've shared, you know, where you've, you know, no doubt, been right. in the doldrums of your mood or something. Right. He seems to sound like his wife is never part of the problem. Oh. It's always his disorganized style which contributed to the problem. Bob, what do you think? I like this question. I'm glad this person's asking. I um cuz I agree, it does take two to tango. And um I don't talk about Colleen because I respect her privacy, and she hasn't consented, so I usually just talk about my side of things. Um, I'll say this. Um, when I'm in conflict, my first instinct is to blame. So um, one of the benefits of being on the podcast is that I get at the moment a little distance and a little reflection so I can actually see, oh, yeah, that's that thing I do as opposed to that's that thing she does. <laughs> but, right. If we If we... If I barged into your house in the middle of one of your conflicts and shoved a microphone in your face (laughs) and asked you to talk about what just happened, it it would be a different tone. It would indeed. Yeah, it would be a different tone. I'd be very probably angry and probably blaming and believing the things that I think and um, having that kind of delicious, one-sided, righteous thing that I get sometimes and... um, only when the dust settles and my mood shifts, you know, like just a little bit of time, let the body settle and all that. Because it's fight or flight. gets turned on. Do I actually have perspective? And uh, one of the things that I noticed lately is um, underneath anger, and it's not so far underneath now. It used to be way underneath. But these days, underneath, all I want is connection with her. And I get so damn angry. But underneath it, all I want is a, a connection. And all I expect is, you know, conflict. So, so that said, I can say the following. Colleen and I are both trauma survivors, and so um, uh, it's pretty tricky for us, and we get uh, pulled into that cycle um, uh, more easily than I'd like, and probably more easily than a lot of couples. And Colleen is, quote-unquote, to blame for her side of yeah. the conflict. Yeah, she and Colleen, one of my favorite thing, well, I don't know if it's my favorite thing, but it's... One of the things that I remember about her from way back in the beginning, she's the only person I ever dated who, after one of these conflicts, would say, okay, let's come back. Let's try again. Here's my part. Wow. Great. I've never had a partner like that before. Yeah. The mindset of who's to blame, you're already 
losing the battle. Absolutely. That's a great sentence. You, and, and I've been there, I, yeah, uh, sure. and, and will continue to be there. But when I reach a point where I can see the conflict from a mile high, what I see is two people trying and, and reacting in very normal, uh, understandable ways. Yeah to the point where it spins out of control. I mean, almost everything that we are uh, reacting to in a conflict is a distortion of what's really happening. Indeed. Um, <laughs> and sometimes our partners don't make it easy on us. <laughs> you know, they're yelling at us, for example, mm-hmm. when really they're hurting. And, and so it's, it's easy right. to, quote, unquote, distort that as being um, not hurt, I right. guess. But... But most, you know, by the time you get to a certain age, particularly in a relationship, it's not hard to imagine, oh, that anger comes from a place of hurt. Yeah. The the trick is, is to be as uh, self-aware as you can, right? And as we always talk about, we only have control over our thoughts and behavior. We don't have control over our partners. And so if each person takes uh, responsibility for their area of the lawn, then the lawn will get mowed well. (laughs) And so um, I I was funny, just a little peek behind the curtains of my brain. Uh Uh, I wanted to say, you know, if if we tidy up our side of the fence, but that sort of implied there's a barrier between the two people, which I didn't really like. And so I modified it to just, we're both in the front lawn of, of the house. And then it became a metaphor about mowing lawns together, which doesn't make any sense. I mean, it makes sense as an analogy, but it's not very compelling. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, right. Um, we should do one on metaphors sometime. Oh, God. Yeah. It could be really fun. Metaphors are great. Yeah. So I recommend that people do what Bob does, which is recognize your part and just put a period at the end of that. And when you do that, it tends to encourage the other person to, to follow suit. Yeah. And uh, it's so tempting to say, okay, well, here's my responsibility. But, you know, you... Blah, 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 oh. oh, absolutely. And, and then you're back into it again. Right. And when, that, when I do that, and I have done that, when I do that, I'm missing something in me, some part of me, some vulnerable part of me that I... Um, um, don't want to, and also sometimes just don't have access to. Um, so yeah. if I'm blaming, I'm in it. Yeah. Another aspect to this is one needs to have a certain level of what we call differentiation. One might call maturity. One might call uh, enough validation from others or something to be able to stand firmly on the ground and state without any reservation, I've made a mistake, period. Yeah. And I don't require anyone to make me feel better. I don't require anyone to, um, you know, say, no, 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 you didn't do that. Like you are able to stand in front of a crowd of people and just say, I have made a mistake. Yeah. And that is not an easy thing to do. It isn't. And... One needs a lot of experience with that and having it go well and not having it go horribly to to be able to trust that. One also needs to like oneself enough and Mm. uh, think of oneself in high enough esteem to be able to handle that kind of thing. Um, I've worked in my career with people of all ages and it was it was always a little chuckle in my mind whenever I was talking to a 13-year-old and uh, the, a very obvious thing would come up in which the teenager was to blame and I'd sort of throw it out there uh, the way I might with an adult. And most adults would be like, yeah, yeah you're probably right. Yeah. Teenagers almost universally be like, what are you talking about? No. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. Because they're so insecure. You know, they, they just don't, not all of them, obviously. Sure. But, but generally speaking, they don't have that maturity. They don't have yeah. that differentiation, yeah. that ability to just be like, okay, yeah, I'm me and I'm over here. And sure, I make mistakes. You know, what's it to you? Right. <laughs> um, so that that's hard. You know, yeah. that, that and for some people, they haven't reached that point yet or uh, 
they've never been given a chance to explore that right. that kind of space. Yeah. They've never been modeled it maybe before. I right. don't know. I mean, that certainly is true. Hardly anyone's been... I mean, just look at politicians for oh, crying out loud. Oh, wow. What yeah. You, I don't want to do a, I don't want to do a podcast on politicians. Yeah. And, and also, you know, it just, just pops into my mind in terms of when people do take responsibility. I think of like sports figures. Yeah. Like a very common trope is for coaches to come out after the game, after a loss and say like, this is all my fault. Yeah. But everyone kind of knows like, well, they're, they're doing that because it looks bad for them to blame their players. Sure. And- the coach is kind of like the dad of the team. Yeah. And so he has to say, it's my fault. Yeah, the buck stops with me. Yeah. And the way like a police captain or a yeah. general or something. Right. But everyone understands when the when they go behind closed doors, they're not like crying themselves into a heap saying like, oh my God, I can't believe I screwed up. Sorry, guys, my fault, right? They're not saying that to the team. Hey, yeah. or at least they're not thinking it, Probably you know. Not. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're saying... Uh, Look, you know, I yeah, I made X and Y mistake, but uh-huh. you know, countless other players made mistakes sure. too. So even when people do take responsibility in our society, it tends to be understood like it's a it's a ceremony, it's a ritual a that ceremony, you know, that, like they're, that. that they're following. It, it kind of is. It is. You know, like uh, the Pete Carroll, yeah, Super Bowl, right, right. <laughs> right. Uh, well, that was his fault. God damn it! I mean, fucking give it to Lynch. It's right. so well, obvious. Right, right. Everybody in Seattle. Is did you see saying. my my decade recap video? Oh, you're not on Facebook. No, is it? On, did you post it? Yeah, no, I'll look at it. So, um, one scene, you know, in 2014, is at your house <laughs> watching the Super Bowl <laughs> and us winning, oh, God, and your yeah. dog and everyone's cheering, and cheering. the dogs like starts. Your dog starts to bark. Nice. And then the next year, you know, watching the Super Bowl. And we're like, okay, give it to Lynch, you know? And then, yeah, it was anyway. So, so, uh, (laughs) getting back to your email, patron Molly. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's now what I will say is that you deserve. So, so for Bob, Bob and Colleen, both individually take, they've have, they've been together for many years. They've gone to therapy. They've Mm -hmm. had a lot of conversations Bob has the trust in Colleen and in himself, you know, over lots of experiences that he can fully take responsibility and quote unquote blame himself for his side of the conflict while on the while on the podcast and trust that when Colleen hears that she's not going to blast him. She's going to thank him and she's going to take responsibility for her part. He he feels that in his bones for you, patron Molly. You know, you might be thinking, well, I have conflicts with my spouse and, you know, Bob takes full responsibility for his issues and, you know, on the podcast doesn't blame other people, um, you know, and maybe Patreon Molly's like, am yeah. I supposed to be like that? Yeah. Um, Sounds one-sided. Yeah. The, it's complicated by the fact that we can't just look at Bob's behavior in isolation. We have right. to look at it in the context of their relationship. And that's, that's sort of like the self-actualized pinnacle of any relationship. And you can only get there if everyone, if everyone tangos their way to the top. Right. right. Um, but if your partner doesn't follow suit or lays into you when you blame yourself, so to speak, and take responsibility and doesn't take responsibility for their side, then it's almost impossible to do this. Yeah. Um, it's humiliating. Yeah. It, it, even though you're trying hard, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to stick on my side of the lawn, so to speak. And, <laughs> uh, and then the other person doesn't and, or the other person even ridicules you. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's hard. It's almost impossible to like hold on to that, especially if you have disorganized attachment, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So, so it's a process. It's something that people cultivate together. It's not. Mm-hmm. A, it's not a personality trait. I said. Yeah, definitely you, for us cultivating together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the amount of work that you and Colleen have done is, you know, just it's just a mountain of work, right? Oh, a lot of hours. Yeah. A lot of hours in front of a couple counselor. Yeah, long time. Yeah, years. Repetition. Yeah. Pra- practice. Absolutely. Checking in. Yeah. Getting perspective. Yeah. You know, like yeah. it. It wasn't something that you just. That just happened. No, no. And years of my own personal therapy. I mean, just years. Yeah. Uh, 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, I get emails from people saying that they feel hopeless and discouraged that, because I'll say that, I'll be like, yeah. I'll even, I'll give smaller estimates, you know, uh, shorter estimates. I'll just right. be like, you know, because people will be like, okay, I have disorganized attachment or I have borderline or something, you know, right. and, and I've been in therapy for a year and a half and I, I don't see any change. Yeah. And I'll be like, well, it's not likely to see change of any significance in a, in a, in a year and a half of yeah. therapy. Um, I've, you know, the, the, the borderline people I've treated with interpersonal therapy, I'd, I'd say five to seven years before you see like, you know, real symptom reduction mm -hmm. and people are like, what, you know, DBT is supposed to cure you in 10 weeks. You know what I mean? Like those kinds of claims you'll see online. Sure. That's a misunderstanding of, um, stages in therapy. What do you mean? Um, DBT has this, they, they do this metaphor in DBT is like if you, if you're one of the classic people shows up, you have the trouble with the suicide and self-harm impulses and so forth. Um, um, you spend the first year getting your butt out of hell, that you're just in hell. And once you're out of hell, you're in quiet suffering, which means mm, the only thing you're, the one thing that's mainly shifted is I'm not doing my, what they call target behaviors like self-harm mm -hmm. and so forth. But I don't really have, nothing really is, else is better. But it's sort of like, in order to make it better, I got to stop from making it worse. So, um, you know, that can take longer than a year. I've had uh, students in my class longer than a year. Right. Um, but years, the, you know, just the rule of thumb. And then you're in quiet suffering, which means you're miserable. But you don't have a life that's feeding your soul or making you happy. You're just not doing things to make it worse. And... Um, that they call that stage two and there isn't a lot of data on it, how long it takes to get through. Um, but a lot of it is directly working with people's trauma. Cause most people that have those kinds of impulses have uh, some kind of trauma, traumatic um, history or whatever. So, um, and also experiential relationships that are positive. Yeah. Uh, that prove that people can be trusted and that yeah. they are in fact lovable. Yeah. That takes years and years yeah. for it to really sink in. Right. Nobody, nobody has any data on how long it takes to move from out of hell to having just a life with ordinary problems, which is they call stage three, just a life like everybody else's with ordinary problems. Right. Uh, nobody has any data on that. There's not a lot of research. There's no, I'm, I'm not aware of any research on it's, it. It's expensive. You know? oh, yeah. There's research on how interpersonal therapy can, uh, the percent, I can't remember, but inter interpersonal psychodynamic therapy with yeah. borderline, uh, something like one or two years is, I think, the, the point where you start seeing, say, 30% of the participants having subclinical uh, symptoms of borderline. Got it. Um, I can't remember. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. Obviously, people out there, but it, there there are some data around around that kind of thing. So, Patreon Molly, you go on to say, "I'd love for you to talk on the reality of psychotherapists who are partnered romantically with non psychotherapists." Oh, how do you navigate those relationships so that the therapist doesn't just extend their work into the relationship? Indeed, I find this really difficult and challenging. Yeah, as with most psychotherapists. I am empathic, caring, compassionate, and sometimes I don't want to listen empathically or with an ear for trauma and cognitive distortions, but it's really hard not to avoid that. Bob, what do you think? I say turn the camera inward. That what you do in therapy is you turn the camera outward. You pay attention to your client, what their experience is, and you're listening that way. But if you're doing that, if I do that in, I should just speak for myself, if I do that in my relationship, then I'm doing... Um, <laughs> I tell you that story. The the therapist I went and saw, a psychologist, give a talk. Uh, David Whalen. David Whalen. You ever heard of that guy? Doesn't matter. Um, he gives a uh, uh, talk about self of, self of therapist. Is that what they call it? Self of therapist. Yeah. And he says, "Oh, I learned all my clinical skills when I was six. <laughs> and he, he describes a difficult uh, childhood, particularly with his mother. Right. So, anyways, if I act like therapist in my relationship, I'm avoiding me. And so my, my focus is in the wrong spot. So instead of, it isn't that, it isn't that I'm not empathic towards Colleen, but if I'm doing that, I'm, I'm, there's a potential that I'm paying attention to her, to her, um, as my, um, 
focus my my focus on her is a def, uh, I don't love this language a defense mechanism um and what's difficult is how do I feel like it's un, it's uncomfortable for me to pay attention to that so I don't know if I'm like if Molly's like me but if she is then when she finds herself doing that I would pay attention to self like oh what's leading me into my empath role or whatever it is I want to call it. Um, what am I avoiding? Yeah, excellent. I Thanks. like that. It's a defense to yeah. uh, analyze other people uh, potentially um, in the face of difficulty. It's a, you can imagine you're in a tense situation with your spouse and uh, you're starting to be hurt. You're starting to f- get angry you're starting to wonder if it's your fault and you have self-esteem yeah. in analyzing other people because it's your job. Yeah. And so you slip into that and that's what you focus on. Right. And then you start to exhibit that to right. your partner. Right. You're only doing this because of blank, yeah. blank. And then that leads to problems. Yeah. So focusing inward is like, okay, well, wait, why yeah. am I going there? Right. Why am I going to analytical mode right now? Right. Um, the other thing I'll say to this is, because this is a question that I often get uh, from people, and I find that no experienced therapist worries about this. Like, I don't know any colleague of mine who was like, or struggling with this, who was like, yeah, you know, when I go home to my spouse, I just, I just can't turn it off. Oh, yeah. Like, I've never heard anyone say that to me. Yeah. I only hear people saying they're worried about it or they're curious about it. Right. But I've never heard a therapist say that that's a problem because yeah. there, there's certain premises in that question that aren't true. I, and I think one premise is that analyzing other people is a bad thing, yeah. but it's, it's not a bad thing. Right. We all do it. Sure. Uh, you know, when your spouse comes home from work and you kind of detect they're in a bad mood and then they bark at you, you analyze that and say, like, did something happen at work? Yeah. You don't. You don't just ignore that information, right. you know, and you might even say something like, did something happen at work? Yeah. The ability to understand people, if you really, really understand people accurately, only leads to compassion for them. Oh, yeah. And what a wonderful thing to have for your spouse. Right. When they're in a bad mood and they're barking at you after work and you're able to see through that and yeah. able to see that they're suffering and you react to that suffering rather than the barking. Yeah. What a wonderful thing. Yeah. And your spouse isn't going to complain about that. <laughs> your spouse is going to your spouse is going to be very happy that yeah. that you don't react to their bad behavior, you know? Uh so now the problem is again as we were talking about earlier, if you use an analysis to attack. Yeah. And that's not actually using and that's not actually analytical. That's just a uh, a trick that you're playing on yourself that you think is clinical when in fact it's just a veiled attack that or, anyone is capable of. Yeah, you know, the other thing we do is we put focus on the other and it ends up being an avoidance of me. So like my spouse comes home, they're in a bad mood, they bark at me. Um I might have compassion for them or I might have hurt feelings and I might say, "Hey, you know that hurt." When you talk to me like that, which isn't like, hey, you're an asshole. More like, ouch, that hurt. And saying ouch, that hurt is a completely legitimate thing to do and often very useful feedback for their partner about the impact they're having on you. And um, um, doesn't preclude having compassion for them. Doesn't, get, doesn't mean that you can't or that um, you can't hold both ends. Of course you can hold both ends. Right. I once treated a couple where um, uh, one of the partners was uh, a couple counselor. Right. Did the same kind of work that I do. And one of the things that we learned is that they um, had an enormously hard time slowing down and paying attention to their own experience. And that somehow when there was conflict, it's like they had this reflex to focus on the partner. And there's a whole world happening inside that they didn't have access to and felt really uncomfortable accessing and learning about and also sharing. And yet at the same time, um, as they developed their ability to, to do that, their relationship improved. Yeah. Yeah. I think in part because their partner felt like, oh, you're really there. 
You really are there. Oh, I'm having an impact on you, and I can actually see it in the tears in your eyes or in the ache in your heart, as opposed to mm, that sort of uh, Florence Nightingale super compassion, you know, where (laughs) you have no pain because you can absorb it all, right? Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon that's not intuitive, I think, to a lot of people, that to, to have emotional problems. Yeah to be hurt by your spouse, to, to be affected by your spouse is somehow an appealing um, quality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, to, to uh-huh. your spouse, right? Uh-huh. That, that uh, it goes against our cultural notions of, right. of, of being strong, sure. not being a whiner. Self-sufficient. Not being needy. Yeah, right. Needy. Oh, that's a biggie. Yeah. yeah. Uh, these are usually things we self-judge, not things that we yeah. tend to judge in other people yeah. in general, of course. Right. Um, anyway, before we go to break, I want to read a poem that I think someone might have sent me. I'm not quite sure. It's on psychotherapy.net, or psychotherapy.net and it is written by Carrie Mulholland. Huh. Um, and it, it's sort of interesting, and then we'll go to break. In that billowing silence, a silence to loathe and love, like the first gasp of submersion at the pool. In that silence, I examine the paintings on your wall and the thin splits between the floorboards, the leavings caught in them, crumbs and dust, and once a tiny blue bead. In the roaring silence, while I scrambled away from the edges, I came to know well the hem of your skirts and the lay of your hands on your lap, still. Each Tuesday I sat in the corner of your couch, ringed by, ringed by a wreath of damp tissue. <laughs> you, you rocked in your chair. Sometimes I thought you were a beautific witch, just waiting with your gentle prods to send me back into the seas, to push me under over and over. Sometimes I thought you invented the pearl I sought, a mean, a mean joke on me. I thought you knew what I was going to say next, knew my interior as if it were written in a code for which you held the key. Sometimes I liked this, then I didn't. How still our bodies were, while I dangled over the fire at the bottom of my darkest pits, writhed in a... Writhed? Writhed? I've never heard of that word, writhed. Writhed in the salt of my ordinary wounds... How quiet and desperate that year of weekly hours. How sessions of light dwindled and blossomed across the planks of your floor. How my singular and universal dreads met and wrestled up under your watch. How I wanted to crawl into your lap and have you stroke my hair and say, there, there. And how, in a way, never touching me, you did. Nice poem. Yeah. I like that last. I want to read that last bit again. How I want to crawl into your lap and have you stroke my hair and say, there, there, and how in a way, never touching me, you did. Uh, There's just something really observant about that. Indeed. Good writer. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, these little little details that poets will alert us to, right? That those little things you notice in your therapist's office, kind of subconsciously, you know. I've gotten to um, making them conscious. I say to my clients often, where do your eyes want to go? Do you have your spots picked out? Because oh. everybody picks their spots and they all point. They know exactly where they're, point, where they're looking. Yeah. And usually there's something connected to the look. Like yeah. one fellow the other day just looking down at the floor. And I'm like, I noticed that your eyes went down. And he's, he said something so insightful. He said, when I express hope, I feel ashamed really interesting and so I was knocked me over with a feather it was so fast such a fast insight such a great self-awareness really impressive anyways the point is is that everybody picks their spots Mm. the eyes just go where they go Mm -hmm. yeah and and they also avoid spots yeah Mm. yeah like what usually um, eye contact Mm. with either partner if it's a couple or me um, or both um um, uh, almost like a wish to not be seen. Hmm. Yeah. So she, this poet, disappeared into the cracks in the floor. 
It's really cool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I can remember certain things in my last therapist's office that I never really fully processed, you know, a little statuette on uh-huh. a on a bookshelf and or a little picture frame with something and and it never even though I probably looked at it, you know, a, a combined, you know, three weeks, I never really looked at it, you know, and, and said, what the hell is that thing? <laughs> right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, I'll, at a certain, I don't know, threshold for clients, they will start to actually take that leap and start to interact with things in my office in a way that um, I think there was a part of them that, that always wanted to. Curious. You know, it makes sense, right? It's like sure. uh, when we're five and uh-huh. we walk into a room and there's a bunch of little goodies, uh-huh. we want to put our hands on those goodies. And uh-huh. we want to, when we're, when we're 18 months, we want to put that thing in our mouth. Absolutely. You know, we don't, we don't lose that curiosity <laughs> as adults. Right. Uh, we just restrain ourselves, you know, because our superego kicks yeah. in and says, don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, you have a lot of things in your office. I do. Yeah. I, I have a lot of books. You do. And so the the frequent sort of threshold that I'll see some clients make is they'll actually at some point say, I've been looking at that book for two years. Right. What is that book? I don't, right. Or can I read that book? You know? yeah. and, <laughs> and, and, you know, it ends up kind of being this unconscious... I feel like it's two things. One, I feel like it's a leveling of the playing field. Mm-hmm. I feel like the client is is starting to say, I am important enough or I feel comfortable enough or something, or you've you've made me understand that you're not above me or something mm-hmm. that I can actually casually just ask you about your office the mm-hmm. way I might with a friend or something. Right. I'm not their friend, but no. But it is a it is a leveling of a of the playing field. You know what I sure. mean? Sure, you're not not their friend. Yeah, I mean I'm friendly, but sure. I'm not in a relationship with them no. as a friend. You know. No. But anyway, the the other thing that I think it is is um, a desire to um, possess the the warmth of therapy mm-hmm. to, to because the office often as this poet you know I think exemplifies or mm-hmm. writes about is the office becomes part of the part of the womb of therapy if you will yeah nice image and we want to hold that yeah. with us uh yeah. all the time and um and if we can bring those things you know they're probably just to some extent arbitrary objects when i think about that when i think about all the therapists i've had you know of course everything in there was you know just a convenient thing or or some little knickknack they had, or um, maybe it was intentional, maybe it wasn't, but it was, it, it wasn't that important. But to me, those things had tremendous support. And I, I remember I, there's this one, actually, he wasn't a therapist of mine. He was a supervisee, but it's a similar kind of, a supervisor, sure. sorry. Yeah. And there was one statue that he had that was, I can still picture it in my mind. And it had tremendous importance to me <laughs> and if i could have had that thing you know and brought it with me and mm-hmm. put it in my office so mm-hmm. i could look at it i think it would have that transitional object uh, appeal to me the way a child brings their their soft blanket with them wherever they go right um have you ever had that evan where i wanted something where you've started to explore your therapist's office oh yeah yeah um Sometimes when I get there, he's got to use the restroom or eat something, and he's like, go on in. So I go in, and I usually stand at the window. He has a view of um, the Seattle Center where the Space Needle is. So sometimes I look out the window and look at the traffic going by and whatever. Sometimes I look at the photo of his son. Um, Sometimes I look at his business cards. Sometimes I look at the business cards of the people that he shares the office with. Um, Sometimes his wallet and keys are there. (laughs) I haven't gone through his wallet. I don't think I'd ever do that, but it's kind of funny. And a hat. He has a hat, which I never see him wear. Um, so, yeah. I'll tell you, well, I walked in here, what, maybe six months ago? And you have a lot of, not just books, but you have a lot of knickknacks on one of your shelves, you know? And I picked up one, and I'm, like, handling it. And I'm like, what is it? And you're, and you're like, it's a fly swatter. <laughs> I'm like, ah! <laughs> I look like a racquetball racket. <laughs> 
<laughs> Did you think it was like a memorabilia? Uh-huh. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I have a shelf with a bunch of memorabilia. Uh, podcast memorabilia, childhood memorabilia, yeah. uh, you know, past pets memorabilia, this kind of thing. And right. <laughs> apparently Bob picked up my it, – it's a fly killer. It ha- It's the electric Tronic. It looks yeah. like a tennis racket, yeah. and you, you, it's electrified. And, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we had a problem with fruit flies. Oh, yeah. Um, sure. And normally, you know, they're from bananas that you bring from the, you know, fruit that you bring from sure. the uh, grocery store, and then uh, they live in the the fruit basket and the, the compost, compost basket. Right. And you put out that... Um, you know, you get rid of the, the bananas and you get rid of the, the compost. Then you put out that that uh, you, you you put vinegar in a. Like have a you seen this? Right, yeah. And you you poke holes in saran oh, wrap. Oh right, yeah, yeah. We did that once. It works. They go in there and they yeah. die, and it fixes it. You know, yeah. and so you might have to suffer a couple weeks with fruit flies. For some reason, I, I was getting and I was doing that system, and the fruit flies weren't going in there, and I and I was getting fruit flies. All, all over, not just the kitchen, but all over the house. Oh, bummer! And I was using that. I was using that tennis racket thing to yeah. to kill probably, you know, ten of these fruit flies a day, and mm. they were still showing up. And my mm-hmm. clients were having to kind of push mm. them out of their face, which was really embarrassing. Co therapists. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I have them purposely in here to test your frustration tolerance. <laughs> um, and then I figured out on the internet that they weren't fruit fruit flies. They're, well, I don't know what sort of fly they are, but they live in your sinks. Oh, in the sink. There's there's a kind of fruit fly that, species that uh-huh. doesn't live in the compost. It yeah. lives in your, the, you know, the traps in your, in your sink, in, uh-huh. in any, in any yeah. trap. So it could be in your shower sink, you know, the, the, yeah. s- the drain sink. The pea trap or whatever. Right. Yeah. And so I, so the solution is to get boiling water and and pour oh, it down. Of course, right. Um, and so I did that over the span of I don't know a few weeks, and it got rid of them. Oh, nice. But for like I'm no no joke, like eight months maybe. I've been dealing with these flies in the house, and right. and, and I I didn't have any idea. No. And um, I feel like people need to know about this sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, we, we learned all kinds of stuff out there today. All right, let's take a break, and we get back. Let's talk about more ways to kill flies in your house. What do you say, Bob? <laughs> All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com and become a podcast. That's the way we know you like this thing. Bob, I want to end the podcast by talking about Wedding vows, because you want to, didn't you want to talk about wedding vows? Oh, yeah. We're doing that today. I don't know. We can do that another time. Yeah. I'm not prepared for that. I, oh, I don't let's think Let's do that I, another time. I don't think I have my wedding vows with me. We can do that. I'll add it to the list of things okay, I'll in, go, in the future. Okay. I'll look them up. I uh, got another email here. Patron, anonymous patron writes, mm-hmm. are there benefits to being vulnerable in therapy? So I have a really hard time being open and sharing my thoughts and feelings. And this is something we have been working on in therapy since I've never had any close relationships where I could do that. Wow. But every time I feel vulnerable feelings, every time I feel vulnerable feelings, I just freeze and shut down and I can't express anything I'm feeling. Hmm. And that's where it usually stops. I've been writing my thoughts and reading it in session, which helps. Hmm. It feels terrible in the moment, though. I guess there's a lot of shame around my own thoughts and sharing them with someone, but it does feel better afterwards. Part of me wants to push through and see what comes of it, because every time I did, it turned out to be good. Hmm. But the other part of me thinks it's terrifying and cringeworthy and shameful. Bob, what do you think? Uh, Sounds about normal to me. Uh, I think we might have this view of self as um, somehow vulnerable means that there's a problem, and I think it's just normal. And there's a lot of data on that one, too. It's not just me that thinks that. So... Um, what sort of data? Uh, that Brene Brown stuff. Like you uh, self-report data around vulnerability or something? or You'd have to ask her because okay. I never read any of her books. I just know that that's her thing. That's what she likes to talk about. Yeah. And um, 
so I don't know if there's actually data. Maybe there's just a lot of um, there's information out there to be had about the benefits of vulnerability. But I don't think we'd call it vulnerability if it didn't feel the way it feels. But it is normal so and universal. So I applaud this person, and I think they're answering their own question, which is, yeah, keep at it. Um, and we can always just report the immediate, which is actually the hardest. You know, Dickens says, oh, no, it's the future that's the hard one, right? But I think Dickens got that wrong. I think it's the present that's the hard one. Anyways, um, saying, oh, I've got that frozen thing, you know, or it's stuck in my throat, or I feel the thing in my chest, or whatever it is that I'm experiencing, is that's more vulnerable sharing. And also, um, perhaps, could... Um, lead a person or at least be a uh, step towards having more insight about what actually is this moment? What am I telling myself about this moment when I'm sharing my inner world with, yeah, so-and-so? And you could all you could even just stay in the first step and, and benefit tremendously. Yeah. Uh, you know, anonymous patron, you say you struggle with talking about how you feel, but you're extremely good at it yeah. in, this, in this email. Right. A lot of people could never write this email. Yeah. So you're doing great. I agree. Uh, and you could all, you could just stay in this zone for the rest of your therapy and cure yourself of the attachment um, problems that you probably suffer from. Um, the, 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 the therapy relationship is a great practice right. round for, um, as my first therapist said to me, yeah, Bob, the kind of intimacy that you have here with me, you're supposed to find that out in the world. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> that was 30 years ago. So, <laughs> right. Right. I mean, that's the whole idea. Yeah. That's the idea. Becomes generalized to right. the regular life. Yeah. And so somebody, yeah. So you're already doing it. Yeah. Um, in therapy, you're pushing the envelope yep. by even just saying it's hard to talk about these yeah. things. Yeah. Bravo. Yeah. And you could just, you don't have to go any deeper than that. If you don't want to mm-hmm. staying in that discomfort area and just saying, I, I have vulnerable feelings I want to share, but I'm having a hard time sharing them. Beautiful. You're sharing the vulnerable feelings in that moment. You are indeed. And it's such a wonderful experience to be vulnerable, to express, to value yourself, to uh, take that leap of trust to someone who deserves it and to receive validation and compassion from other people. It's one of the most important experiences that one could have. Um, and, you know, you're having them. So, you know, that's great. You go on to say, and won't it just make me feel more attached and harder to leave in the end? Uh, That's a worry I still haven't mentioned to my therapist. Bob, Bob, what do you think? Bring it up. What a great thing to bring up. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, The answer is, yeah, it actually will make you attached and will make it harder. And that's okay. That's kind of the way we're built. Yeah. Yeah. The the thing about, to sort of piggyback on that is, it's true. You will become more attached, as Bob's saying, and it will make it harder, as Bob is saying. But that'd be like saying, well, I don't want to go on vacation because I don't want to come back home. Exactly. Um, it, it, yeah, it sucks to go back home it after does. vacation because yeah. you like being on vacation. But does that mean you don't go on vacation? Right. Like, it doesn't, you know, it, yeah, it's going to be hard. Uh, and when that day comes, it will be sad. And it will be a loss. And one you came by honestly. Uh, yeah. I guess another analogy would be, uh, I don't want to have a pet because the pet will die and, I, and it will be hard. Now, that's a choice people can make sure. For, sure, for sure. Absolutely. But I think most pet owners make the choice of just like, well, but to have no pet in my life, yeah. that's, that's worse. So, you know, the, the future pain isn't a reason to avoid, uh, you know, a lifetime of pleasure and attachment. The other thing is there's this weird bias in our society around becoming attached in therapy. Oh, right. Attached. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm too dependent on my yeah, therapist. Yeah, yeah. And there are cert- there are rare instances where that can be, you know, identified as a problem if, if the therapist is fostering too much um, dependency, so to speak. Well, then it's not about the client's well-being and growth. Right. It's about the some need that the therapist... We've done a letter or two about that right. where people have had kind of a lousy experience with therapists, had trouble with managing their own limits and boundaries and so forth. Right. Yeah. But to become dependent and attached on your therapist, yeah. if you're there to cure yourself from previous attachment wounds, is a necessary part of it. 
you cannot heal from your attachment wounds from a distance. (laughs) You have to take that leap of trust and fear to benefit from the security. You have to experience that. That's the whole point. You, your part, your body is like, but people are scary, but yeah. I want to, I want an attachment relationship. Right. You take that leap and it's, it's scary, but then you're received well yeah. and you're cared for and you learn, oh, I'm lovable and people are capable of love. You ha- you can't intellectually know that. You have to feel it in your bones. Yeah, that's true. And so by being more attached, you're actually doing the work. And yeah, it will be harder. It will be harder in the end when, when you say goodbye. The but, other thing is, is, yeah. is why are you worrying about the end? I mean, if for me, for example, and Bob, if you came to us for therapy, uh, the, the end, quote unquote, could be in 30 years. <laughs> um, not likely to last that long, honestly, because sure. most clients don't actually want therapy for that long. Yeah. But most... And you, you can inquire about this sort of thing. Like, sure. do you plan on moving anytime soon? Right. You know, do you plan on terminating with me? Right. You can know, retire? find a therapist like me and Bob, of which there's a lot of us, who will tell you, no, as long as you're wanting to see me, and as long yeah. as I'm alive and yeah. capable of sitting in this chair and talking to you, which is probably decades, <laughs> then we're good. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, so luxuriate in that security. Um, You know what's interesting? It strikes me, you help me if I'm getting this wrong, but I hear a person who's afraid of sadness, right? But sadness is just normal. Like, Mm -hmm. you're alive, you're going to have sadness. Mm -hmm. And maybe what they're describing is how terrifying it is to have sadness. Maybe they haven't had the corrective experience of sadness just being sadness, which is painful, Mm -hmm. but um, I hope I don't sound preachy, nothing to be avoided. Right. Yeah, good. We have a value in our society of sadness is bad. Yeah. But it's not necessarily bad. Um, it's never bad. It's just like laughing. Well, well I'll, I'll modify that. Okay. Uh, there's a difference between sadness, like yeah. grief and missing someone. Yeah. And um, wishing something wasn't true, I guess, or wishing for something to change back to the way it was. Yeah. You know, I, I miss my cat and my dog that died last year. Yeah. Um, it's sad. That's not a bad thing. No. I don't, I don't run away from that sadness, hmm. but there's a threshold in po- upon which it crosses when it's so painful that it's not bad, like to be judged, but it's, it's so intolerable that it is something to be kind of afraid of really yeah i I mean don't you think like some some uh, extreme versions of of pain and sadness are um kind of scary and and it's valid to be scared of that oh i don't think there's anything valid about being scared and i don't think i don't think you're wrong either i think it is scary i'm just thinking it isn't dangerous right right you're not going to die from it no and you actually aren't harmed by it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the extreme, which I agree with, yeah. sort of a radical acceptance of, oh, yeah, you that, know, this is, this is life. And, I had that and, thought, yeah. And, yeah, it's going to suck. Right. Uh, but you'll get through it, and it, and it, and it, it feels probably worse than, you actually, than it actually will be when it actually happens. That now that's interesting. That sentence, yeah, it feels worse than it, you, your our anticipation is worse than the actual, right. yeah, which is almost always true. Yeah, right. Go, I don't, go ahead. Well, I don't know. I think um, it's normal to have your heart broken. Hmm. Um, though, as you were talking, I was thinking about complicated bereavement, which actually I think is just ends up being avoidance of sadness, and so therefore it lingers and lingers and lingers. And I, I suspect that when we lose someone or um, or um, I don't like saying something about pets because they're family members, but I don't have a better. When we lose someone, period, a pet or a family member, someone we love, um, we're probably forever touched to some degree. We probably are changed in some ways. But what do you? It's like you said. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Not get married? Not have a cat? Right. Right. I mean, you don't want to come to the end of your days and discover that you didn't live. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anonymous patron ends here saying, "P.S." I admire how Bob and Umberto are able to talk about themselves and their experiences. I've never been able to do that with anyone, but now I wish I could. Uh, again, 
anonymous patron. You just yeah, did. You just did. There's <laughs> an irony. Yeah. Beautifully, by the way. Yeah, I wonder how much of how much of your self beating up has to do with your perception of this whole thing. I wonder how oh, right. how what internalized voices are shaming you or judging you because in your discussion about how bad you are at something, you're exhibiting how good you are at Indeed. it. Indeed. Very articulate, very self-aware. Lovely. S- yeah. So maybe it's the, maybe it's that it, opening up is, has nothing to do with the issue. It's, it's that inner voice telling you yeah. that you're screwing up or you're not good enough at it or yeah. you're, you're not performing well enough or, or something. Probably hard to imagine a universe in which you are. Perhaps, yeah. You know. So let us know how you're doing, anonymous patron. Way to go. And I'll pass it along to Bob as well. By Thank the way, you, by if, the way, if people ever want me to forward to Bob anything, you know, just just say please forward to Bob or address, you know, Kirk and Bob or something, you know, if if I see his name, I will. F- I'll just yeah, forward. You forward everything to me. Then. Yeah, um, but sometimes I'm not quite sure if you know. Oh, what people want. Sure. And I think people have this notion that all of us read all the emails or something, and oh, it's like uh-huh. I'm the only one who reads the emails. And, yeah, yeah. And if you contact us, go to our website psychologystatter.com, fill out the contact us page. Do not comment below. You can you're f- feel free to comment below, but don't think I'm going to see it because I've limited myself only to the emails because it, that already is taking too long. It's it's getting to quite a volume lately that oh, I have to limit myself just just to those emails. The problems of success. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. I remember not that long ago, maybe even just five years ago, uh-huh. um, I would get one message or comment or something every month or something. Wow. <laughs> or maybe even less. I mean, if yeah. we go way back to uh-huh. the first three years, yeah, it would be like one indication of a, of a fan, so to speak, every three months or something. Uh-huh. And often it was kind of an odd person, you uh-huh. know, who that I'm like, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Just kind of like, oh, you're kind of an oddball, aren't you? Like, and you discovered our oddball thing. But now, yeah, it's 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 at a point where, having said that, I respond to every email. Yeah. And I try to answer every email on, on the air, too. How many are you getting in an average day or week? Um, oh, man. On an average day, 10 or 20, oh, maybe. Oh, wow, that's quite Maybe a lot. more. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that doesn't include the comments and all that kind of right. stuff. So at some point I can't I'm not going to be able to do that. That's a point. Um but I'm still in that zone. Yeah. I'm at the zone now where I'm like I can't read the comments. Yeah. I used to read every every little Everything, thing. And so often I I'll see it. Stacy monitors that kind of stuff and if she thinks I need to see something she'll she'll send it. And actually I told her to send things to you too if if okay. if if it pertains to you. Anyway. Okay. So great yeah. letter. Huh? Great great email. I like that this person emailed and what they yeah. talked about. Good. All right. Well, let's adjourn there. And Bob, why should people take care of themselves? Because they deserve it. 